Um, I want to welcome everyone to our third annual uh, Mars Hill Forum. Uh, we're really excited about this year. We're really excited about Dr. Kreeft being here. Uh, my name is Chad Grissom. I'm with University Christian Fellowship. Just want to give you a few words about the forum, uh, and then we'll get right to, right to business. Um, 2,000 years ago or so, a Jewish rabbi showed up in Athens, the cultural capital of the Greeks. And um, he was there, and he was interviewed and brought before uh, the, the Mars Hill, the forum there, um, to, to answer for his uh, ideas and the things that they said, the vain jangling, the babbling that he was bringing before these Greek and Stoic philosophers. And he stood in a place where almost 400 years before, Socrates himself had been tried, the one who said the unexamined life is not worth living. And of course, uh, Paul, the rabbi, uh, communicated the Christian gospel uh, with pagan poetry to an audience that was unfamiliar with Jewish scriptures. Uh, and he spoke of, to the people, to the place that gave birth to, to philosophy, the love of wisdom, he spoke of the divine wisdom that had been manifested in Jesus Christ. And so, of course, the Marshall Forum is named after this incident there uh, in, in Athens some 2,000 years ago. Uh, and in particular, we're really interested in the fact that Paul was able to communicate to a culture that was totally unfamiliar with Jewish scripture um, and was able to communicate in a way that they understood. Of course, the account in Acts tells us that a few believed, some believed, uh, but it was still uh, representative of what we hope to do. When Lexington, Kentucky was founded very early on, it was called, and the people who founded it called it repeatedly, the Athens of the West. It was a hope that uh, Lexington would be a place similar to Athens. And so for us, the Marshall Forum is an effort to be in the tradition of Paul in Athens, uh, and in particular today in the, in the tradition of C.S. Lewis, who did something very similar, uh, in a very similar context, in a world where uh, Christianity was fading. Um, Lewis was able to communicate the Christian gospel in ways that were understandable to an audience that was increasingly uh, foreign to the gospel. So we hope for the forum year after year to be a place where there's an intersection of faith and culture, uh, where Socrates' call to the examined life is also a call to the divinely examined life. Uh, and it's our hope that um, this will be a tradition that goes on for years to come. We're very honored that Dr. Kraft would be here this morning. Uh, I'd just like to open us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll move in. Pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for this university and for uh, the opportunity to be able to hold this forum here. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the traditions that are woven together here. Uh, Lord, we ask that you, would, uh, that you would call us to the examined life, and a life examined by you. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would bless Dr. Kreeft, that you would um, give us your Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, uh, that you would communicate true knowledge, uh, and that we would be receptive to it. Uh, so we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Kelly Hahn, and I am the staff advisor for University Christian Fellowship, better known on campus as UCF. And UCF is the student organization that actually puts on the Mars Hill Forum. UCF started in 1974 when a group of UK freshmen started meeting together for a Bible study. And today UCF is still dedicated to the same ideas that drove those first few meetings, knowing God and maturity through discipleship to Christ. 
As the study grew into something beyond as the study grew into something beyond the weekly meeting, Lexington Christian Fellowship was organized in 1980 as a local church within the university community. Over the following years, LCF grew and planted three more congregations, Jessamine Christian Fellowship in Jessamine County, Trinity Christian Fellowship here in Lexington, and in Easter 2018, Emmanuel Christian Fellowship, which is also in Lexington. And while planting churches, UCF has remained a constant campus presence. You may have seen us on campus in late September, reading the entire Bible nonstop over a 72-hour period. Reaching college students remains a priority for the churches. And in addition to serving UK and BCTC, UCF has expanded to Asbury University through Jessamine Christian Fellowship, and last year added a Bible study at Eastern Kentucky University. So I want to give a, a brief overview of the schedule for this morning. Dr. Kraft is going to give his first talk on C.S. Lewis and the problem of pain, and then we'll have about a 15 to 20-minute Q&A, and then we'll have about a half an hour break. There's refreshments and book sales out uh, in the broader part of the student center. Then we'll come back for Dr. Crave's second talk on C.S. Lewis and religion and morality. We'll have another Q&A, and then we'll dismiss for the day. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Peter Kraft. I first became aware of Dr. Kraft in the early 2000s when I was reading a book by Lee Strobel called Case for Faith. And in that book, Strobel interviews a number of scholars and writers on the most cited obstacles to the Christian faith. And in the very first chapter, he grills Dr. Kraft on the subject of the problem of evil. And I found it to be a, a really stimulating read. Perhaps my favorite writing of Dr. Kraft's, though, is an essay that you can find on his website, peterkraft.com, called How to Win the Culture War. It's also available in a much more fleshed-out book by the same name. And if you're not aware that our civilization is in crisis, that book and that essay will rattle your cage. Dr. Kraft, known as one of the world's foremost experts in Christian apologetics, is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He's a popular writer of Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics, and the author of 95 books, including Back to Virtue, The God Who Loves You, Heaven, The Heart's Deepest Longing, Jesus Shock, and more. His most recent book, published in August, is titled Probes, Deep Sea Diving into St. John's Gospel which offers 1,450 probing questions designed to help individuals or groups, especially groups, to dive deeply into John's gospel. We have four of his books available for sale here today, and you can peruse them during the break and after the conference. Dr. Crave's witty writing covers a variety of subjects from moral relativism to angels and demons to surfing. In this first talk, he will discuss C.S. Lewis and the problem of pain, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Peter Craig. Can everyone hear me? I turned it on. High tech. It's the off his left, on his right. I think I can manage that. Uh, you are all physically looking at me now, uh, and I hope that you can look along with me at C.S. Lewis and along him at the problem of pain. Uh, the problem of pain is a problem that everybody has, practically. 
It's especially an intellectual problem for the Christian who believes that there is a God who is, on the one hand, all-powerful, on the other hand, all-loving, and on the other hand, all-wise. Why then should there be any kind of evil, whether moral or physical? That's certainly the strongest argument for atheism. So what I'd like to do is make a little contract with you. Uh, let's look at that issue rather than at me or at C.S. Lewis or even at his book. We'll look through the book. There are, oh, well over 100 people here, and each of you is probably thinking, I'm only one of, let's say, 200, okay? So I have half of 1% of the responsibility of looking at this issue. There's so many other people that are, that are side by side with me. Uh, try to think that there's only two of us here. There's only me and you, and therefore each of us has 50% of the responsibility. And since I'm doing the talking, at least at first, and you're doing the listening, uh, you have 100% of the responsibility. You're alone. You're all alone with the problem of suffering. And suffering does make you alone because only individuals suffer. A group that suffers is simply a group of individuals that suffer. Suffering makes us all lonely. Uh, if the essence of hell is loneliness, then suffering is a, a kind of a foretaste of hell. So since the problem itself is a, a kind of isolation and loneliness, uh, I ask you to think that way. You're alone with me looking at this problem. I wrote a book once called Making Sense Out of Suffering. Reluctantly, the publisher asked me to write one, and I said, I can't do that because C.S. Lewis wrote the world's best book, the most reasonable book on this subject. Uh, it's called The Problem of Pain. Uh, and they accepted that for a while. And then I got another phone call from the publisher saying, we still want you to write the book. Uh, we know you can't write a great book, but we want you to write a, a not-so-great book. <laughs> because people can't read C.S. Lewis anymore. He's too good. He's too smart. He, he, he thinks too logically. He speaks English, which is a foreign language to most of us. I said, well, maybe I could write a crummy little book instead of a great book on the problem of pain. But most of what I wrote in my book comes in one way or another from, from this book. So what I'd like to do is be a kind of a tour guide and take you on a quick bus trip through this book, just pointing out some of the highlights. Look at that, look at that, look at that. It's not by any means a, uh, an outline or a complete guide or a, a commentary on the book. It's just going down into a deep mine and coming out with a couple of gems. Let's start with the problem. Christianity, he says, creates rather than solves the problem of pain. For pain would be no problem, no theoretical problem anyway, unless side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. Lewis states the problem with great succinctness. If God were good, he would want to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do all that he wished. But the creatures are not happy. 
Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. It's a very strong logical argument. And if you know anything at all about logic, you know that the strategy of an argument is to prove that a conclusion is true by showing that it necessarily follows from premises that are true. So there are only three things that can possibly go wrong with an argument. Either the conclusion doesn't really follow from true premises, or the premises aren't all true, or they're true in one sense but not in another. The terms are ambiguous. Those are the only three things that can go wrong with, with an argument. If there's no ambiguity, no falsehood, and no logical fallacies, the conclusion has been proved to be true. Now, today, most people, when they argue with each other, don't respect that fundamental law of thought. Their answer to an argument that has none of these three problems is almost always, well, that's true for you, but not for me, which is literally meaningless and insane. It means that you have proved conclusively in an irrefutable way that this conclusion is the truth. Well, I don't want to believe it. I am a stubborn, pig-headed fool and prefer to be that rather than to be convinced by your argument. Now, you're thinking, yes, and I'm on the good guy's side. I argue for truth, uh, and, and I often get that response. The atheist feels the same way. We have to take his argument very, very seriously. Lewis does that. So, since the fifth possible response is insane, which of the other four? Ambiguous term, false premise, logical fallacy, or you convince me to change my mind. The possibility of answering this problem depends on showing that the terms good and almighty, and perhaps also the term happy, are equivocal. That's what philosophers usually do. That's what Socrates usually does. That's why he's so insistent on defining your terms. Terms are fuzzy, necessarily fuzzy. If we didn't want fuzziness, we'd all speak mathematics, which is the only non-fuzzy language. So the two key chapters in this book are the one on divine power or omnipotence and divine love or goodness. Lewis argues that we consistently and naturally misunderstand or trivialize these two things. First of all, omnipotence. The standard answer to the problem of pain, which Lewis agrees with, is that God himself cannot simultaneously give us free will and stop us from misusing it to our own detriment and pain. That sounds like uh, a denial of divine omnipotence. God can do everything, can't he? God's omnipotence, Lewis writes, means power to do all that is intrinsically possible not the power to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. There is indeed no limit to his power. But if you choose to say that God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from the creature, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. 
Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the two other words, God can. So, the problem of pain is answered in this way. Okay, you're quarreling with God because there is apparently unexplainable suffering. Fine. Be God. Create a better world. If there were God, he would make a better world than this one, right? All right. So if you're God, what do you do? Do you take away free will from creatures or do you give it to them? And if you give it to them, how do you stop them from misusing it without taking it away? Lewis says, perhaps we can imagine a world in which God corrected all the results of our abuse of free will at every moment so that a wooden beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which evil actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of will would be void. In fact, if the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, even evil thoughts would be impossible. For the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. So, take your choice. Uh, Free will and the possibility of evil, or no free will and no possibility of evil. I don't know how you'd prove that God did the right thing in giving us free will, because call out the reporters, we're not God. My favorite sermon of all time is the one that God preached to St. Catherine when he said, and thereby summarized all of divine revelation in four words, I'm God, you're not. That's basically what he said to Job. Job is the all-time classic on the problem of evil. And Job is a great philosopher and a passionate philosopher and demands answers uh, and the Jews believe that uh, because the scripture says you cannot see the face of God and live and Job wants to see the face of God even though he thinks he cannot live because he has to have that answer people talk of the patience of Job I think the impatience of Job is better good God finally shows up and he doesn't answer a single one of Job's agonizing and profound questions not a single one instead he asks Job questions The personal relationship is changed. Instead of God being the answer man and Job being the questioner, God plays Socrates. He asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I didn't notice you uh, advising me when I wrote the script of your life, when the angels sang together. Were you there? (laughs) And Job, since he is a philosopher and a philosopher is a love of wisdom, says, yes, that's all. Suppose you never met your father. Your mother told you that you had a loving father and he was far away fighting the bad guys, let's say the French Foreign Legion, uh, and someday he'd come home and you never met him. But uh, he kept writing letters to you about his love for you. And you believe those letters. Well, the letters, of course, are the Bible and the mother is the church and the father is God. And then one day your father comes home opens the door and says, I'm your daddy. What do you do? 
Do you say, I'm not going to let you come in until you explain why you had to leave. And I'm not going to accept you until you explain all the mysteries in your letters. If you're a fool, that's what you do. If you're not a fool, if you're a good philosopher, if you're wise, you do what Job did. You say, I had heard about you with the hearing of the ear, and now I see you. That's enough. You really think in heaven God's going to give you a book with all the answers in it? Would that be better than giving you himself? Well, this life is a, a preparation for heaven. The fundamental answer to the problem of pain in this life is not even a great book by C.S. Lewis entitled The Problem of Pain. It's the very presence of God. The next chapter, Divine Goodness, makes another key distinction. Uh, by the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this we may be right. But by love in this context, most of us mean kindness, which is the desire to see others happy. Not necessarily happy in this way or that, but simply happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? By the way, the word happiness in English is a very shallow word. It has in it the word hap, which is Old English for chance. The Greek word for happiness, by contrast, is quite profound, eudaimonia. It begins with the prefix eu, which means good. So you can't be happy unless you're good. The center part of the word is the Greek word daimon, which means spirit or soul, not necessarily an evil spirit, a demon. Uh, and the ia turns it into a noun that means it's a real objective state, not just a subjective feeling. Blessedness is a much better word, not contentment. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who liked to see the young peoples enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. <laughs> Kindness consists very readily to the removal of its object. We have all met people whose kindness to animals is constantly leading them to kill animals lest they should suffer. Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. You ask for a loving God. You have one. The Lord you so lightly invoked is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. He is the consuming fire himself, the love that created the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work, provident and venerable as a father's love for his child, jealous, inexorable, exacting, how this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creature, not to mention creatures as such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. I once taught a course at Boston College, Philosophy and Literature, which focused on Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, which to my mind is the greatest novel ever written. 
at the end of the course, an uh, innocent student came up and said, do you believe this stuff? I said, what stuff? She said, the stuff Dostoevsky believes. I said, yes. She said, <clears throat> Christianity, I mean. I said, yes. Well, at the center of that is that God is love, that God is absolute, total, non-judgmental, demanding, passionate love, this, this, this infinite thing. I said, yes, I believe that. So, do you believe, she said, that God loves me? I said, yes, I do. Why? And I misinterpreted the question. I said, why do I believe it? Because of Jesus Christ. He showed it. She said, no, why does God love me? What's, what's his motive? Why would God, who doesn't need me, love me that much? I was totally stumped. It was the hardest question anybody ever asked me in my life. So I made a joke. I said... <laughs> Come back next year, or maybe I'll have the answer then. I don't have it now. You know what she did? She came back next year. Exactly the next semester at the same class, the same place. Remember me? I was in your class last year. Oh, yeah, you were the one who asked that question. Yeah, remember your answer? Oh, yeah, I said, come back next year. She said, I'm here. Do you have the answer now? I said, see you in heaven. God is wild. God is unpredictable. God has very strange tastes. When God incarnate was about to do his work of giving us hope and redeeming the world, uh, he used a certain animal to get into Jerusalem. He still uses the same animal, the jackass. It's us. He has very strange tastes. And when... When God gives Job his answer, God doesn't explain himself. He doesn't tame himself. He doesn't say, here are your categories. Now, under these categories, I will explain my personality and my choices. He doesn't do that. He says, I created behemoth and leviathan. I created this crazy world. If this world is my creation, you know a lot about me from it. Not everything, but a lot of things. And if there's anything that's obvious about this world, ask any scientist, is that it's full of surprises. It's unpredictable. It's not what we expect. Uh, the key psychological principle in the progress of science is expect the unexpected. Uh, the medievals had much too neat a worldview. That's why they weren't very good scientists. They said, oh, Aristotle got it right. It must be ordered in this way or in that way. And it wasn't. And once you break your prejudices open, and once you see that the world is a crazy, wild story, and that therefore human life is too, then you give God some wiggle room. But if not, not. Well, the most controversial part of Lewis's book is not about the good news, about God. It's about the bad news, about us. He has to have a whole chapter on human wickedness. He starts that chapter with, the examples given in the last chapter went to show that true love may cause pain to its object, but only on the assumption that the object needs alteration to become fully lovable. Now, why do we need so much alteration? Why do we suffer? Well, because God is a great artist. And if one of Michelangelo's statues, uh, a block of marble, were sentient, it would say, Michelangelo, you don't love me. You're causing me pain. You're, you're interfering with me. You're, you're, you're doing too much. Just, just bug off, won't you? Let me be myself. 
And Michelangelo might say, well, okay, you're not worth it anyway. Uh, but if that was going to be uh, a masterpiece, if that was going to be the Pieta, Michelangelo would say, no, not until you were perfect. And what God incarnate said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, the most terrifying sermon ever preached, I can't understand how people think this is comforting, is you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And perfect love does not rest until we are perfect. Why do we need so much alteration? The Christian answer that we have used our free will to become very bad is so well known that it hardly needs to be stated. But to bring this truth into real life in the minds of modern man, even modern Christians, is very hard. When the apostles preached, they could assume, even in their pagan hearers, a real consciousness of deserving the divine wrath. It was against this background that the gospel appeared as good news. It brought news of healing to men who knew they were mortally ill. But all this has changed. We've become Pharisees. We don't need the great physician. We're not sick. All right, goodbye. Terrifying. Christianity now has to preach the diagnosis, which is in itself very bad news, before it can win a hearing for the cure. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Unless we feel this assumption of his to be true, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. This is why moral relativism is not just a moral mistake. It's a disastrous religious mistake. If you think you're not sick, you are not going to make the free choice to call up the doctor. And the doctor's not going to impose himself upon you. God will not rape your soul. He will only seduce it. Well, the ultimate end of a consistent and thoroughly believed moral relativism is inevitably damnation. Because certainly a loving God will not cast into hell uh, anybody that doesn't want to go there, and he will not interfere with your free will, uh, and he is not a tyrant. Uh, but if you scratch the doctrine of free will deep enough, you find the possibility of eternal damnation underneath it. If there's any doctrine in Christianity that's hated, rightly so, it's hell. And if there's any doctrine that's rightly loved, it's freedom, free will. But the two go together as a package deal. Lewis has a whole chapter on hell, uh, and he says, from the premise that man has free will, it logically follows that God's labor to redeem the world cannot be certain of succeeding as regards every individual soul. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. Now, life is either a game or a formula. If it's a formula rather than a game, then all novels mislead. Life is not a drama. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, that's what agape is. Very often, 
people think that there's a fundamental difference between the religious experience of Christians and that of Muslims. And in a sense, they're right. God remains much more distant for Muslims. Yet, at the heart of Islam, there is Islam, total self-surrender. At the heart of Christianity, there is agape. What is that? Total self-surrender, the gift of the self. That's the essence of all authentic religion. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself, though many others can help him to make it. And he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully all will be saved, but my reason retorts without their will or with it. If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, how if they will not give in? The song they all sing as they enter hell is Sinatra's song, I did it my way. In the long run, the answer to all who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? I used that technique a minute ago. Imagine you're God. Make a better world without suffering and without interfering with free will. How do you do it? Same question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out all their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help, he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? What if they will not be forgiven? Forgiveness is a gift. A gift has to be freely given and freely accepted. If I freely choose to smack you in the face and you don't choose to accept it, it's not a gift. <laughs> what if they will not be forgiven? Well, just to leave them alone then? Uh, alas, I'm afraid that is exactly what he does. In the chapter on hell, Lewis speculates that hell is probably not full of demons inserting hot pitchforks into unrepentant posteriors, but simply eternal loneliness. He, ha he starts with a haunting image from Walter de la Mare's poem about Napoleon. And the poem imagines Napoleon's consciousness as he's retreating from the disaster in Moscow through the Russian snows with his soldiers being uh, uh, attacked by the, uh, the Cossacks and the wolves and dying there in the snow. And Napoleon, the supreme egotist, preaches this to his soldiers. What is this world of soldiers? It is I. I, this incessant snow, this northern sky, soldiers, this solitude through which we go is I. That's hell. In order to save us from that, God makes us to suffer because suffering brings you out of your comfort zone, your egotism. Uh, the man who has not suffered, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, the man who has not suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? There are also some remarkable chapters, one on animal pain, which is a much more mysterious, although less important problem than human pain. Uh, Lewis says, the Christian explanation of human pain cannot be used to explain animal pain, for as far as we know, animals are incapable either of sin or virtue, and therefore they can neither deserve pain nor be improved by it. Uh, I won't even tell you his solution. It's reasonable, but 
speculative. His chapter on heaven is one that, to my mind, uh, equals that of the great saints and mystics. It's worth buying the book almost at any price just to read that chapter. And I won't throw snow on his bell. But I will just say that Lewis, I think, succeeds admirably in doing the very limited job that he claims to do in this book. In the introduction, he says, the purpose of this book is simply to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching courage and patience, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified. Nor do I have anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be borne, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy, more than much courage, and the least bit of the love of God, more than everything. I think God read that passage and said, well, good for you, Lewis. You've done the first thing. Now I'm going to teach you the second thing. And thus we have a grief observed. The best book about grieving that I have ever read. Uh, I highly recommend seeing the C.S. Lewis movie, Shadowlands. It gives you the context of it. Uh, the uh, agonizing death of his wife after he fell in love and out of bachelor comfort. Uh, and the book was written to save his sanity uh, and allowed to be published, first of all, anonymously, and then later he consented that uh, his name be used. So this is a, is a private diary. Uh, it's as ruthlessly honest as Augustine's Confessions. He asked the Job question. Uh, after, after he explains what grieving is like, he said, her, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. What an image. Everything. That's not just one thing, not just one person, not just the most important part of my life. Everything. Because, as Aristotle wisely said, even friendship means that you share your heart with another. The friend is the other half of your soul. And now he has half a soul. So, where is God? This is the most disquieting symptom, as it was for Job. Notice, when Job gets God back, uh, even though he doesn't get anything else back, his wife, his kids, his friends, his health, he's satisfied. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims on you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. I tried to put some of these thoughts to sea this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I know, but does that make it easier to understand?
Sooner or later, I must face the question in plain language, what reason do we have? Lewis, by the way, is utterly honest, and he does not regard reason as a kind of tool or instrument, but as something sacred, something that must be respected. What reason have we, except our own desperate wishes, to believe that God is, by any standard we can conceive, good? Doesn't all the evidence suggest exactly the opposite? This is why the Bible not once ever tries to prove that God exists. But on every page, it tries to prove that he's good. Obviously, God exists. Only the fool says in his heart there is no God. But you don't have to be a fool to say, maybe God isn't good. What do we have to set against this evidence? We set Christ against it. The best debate I have ever read between an atheist and a theist is at the heart of Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Ivan Karamazov is a passionate, moral, brilliant atheist. If your faith is weak, don't read that book. Ivan will become your hero. And Alyosha, who is a pious seminarian, has no philosophical, intellectual, logical answer to Ivan's argument from the, the suffering, the horrible suffering of innocent children who are tortured. There is no answer to that, except Christ. Uh, a deistic God, an Aristotelian God, a God who simply created the world uh, perfect, uh, that doesn't jibe with the sufferings of little children. Christ does. And the only way Ivan can answer that word of God, rather than the words in the plural that an argument consists of, is the parable of the Grand Inquisitor. And at the end of the parable of the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan himself, uh, as Alyosha points out, uh, sees Christ as the hero, because Christ doesn't use words, not a single word. That story is the only Jesus fiction that works. All other Jesus fiction, there are a lot of novels about Jesus. They're embarrassingly bad. Isn't it astonishing that you can make great novels out of any historical figure except one? Nobody can ever write a Jesus novel. But Dostoevsky wrote a Jesus story because Christ does not answer a single word of the Inquisitor's arguments, which are profound. All he does is kisses the Inquisitor. And the Inquisitor trembles. And he says, go. The Inquisitor has captured Christ, wants to correct his work by crucifying him again a second time. And he's in prison. And he's won. But he hasn't won. He's lost. In that miraculous movie, The Passion of the Christ, you hear a strange sound at the moment that Christ dies on the cross. And the sound seems to be coming from the depths of the earth. That's the devil. That's the agony that the devil experienced right after he heard the words that caused him supreme joy. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He must have thought, I've succeeded. I've murdered God. The idiot came down into my trap, and I set the blades of that trap, all of them, Judas, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, Herod, Rome, got him. 
And that's exactly the supreme revelation of the truth. And it's judo. In, in judo, you, you use your opponent's strength against him. You're a 98-pound weakling, and here's a 300-pound bully, and he's coming at you. And what do you do? Do you argue with him? Of course not. Bullies don't listen to arguments. Do you wrestle with him? Of course you'll lose. Do you run away? Uh, he's faster than you are. What do you do? You extend your hand out and say, welcome, brother. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's the story of the Lord of the Rings. That's why it's a profoundly Christian story. doesn't need to preach at all. It shows what Jesus did. We set Christ against it. But, now here's Lewis's version of the Grand Inquisitor, the attack not just on God but on Christ. What if even he were mistaken? Almost his last words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, may have a very clear meaning. Perhaps he found that the being he called Father was horribly and infinitely different from what he had supposed. The trap, so long and carefully prepared, so subtly debated, baited, was at last sprung on the cross. The vile practical joke had succeeded. How do you answer that? Lewis dares to go way down into the mind of the devil to get an answer. And here's his answer. I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. Let me try it over again. The ancient Persians used to uh, debate every proposed law twice because the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed, even by the emperor. They debated it once when they were drunk, and the next day they, they debated it when they were sober. And only if the same result came from both days was it enacted as a law. Maybe that's the solution in Washington. <laughs> Whichever party is drunk. <laughs> Let me try it over again. Is it rational to believe in a bad God? In a God as bad as that, the cosmic sadist, the spiteful imbecile. I think it is much too anthropomorphic. Far more anthropomorphic than picturing him as a grave old king with a long beard. That image is a Jungian archetype. It links God with all the wise old kings in the fairy tales, with prophets, sages, and magicians. Though it is, of course, only the picture of a man, it suggests something more than humanity. At least it gets in the idea of something wiser than yourself, something you can't fathom. It preserves mystery, therefore room for hope. When I debate atheists, uh, I say, you don't have faith, but do you have at least hope? Don't you see Christianity as a wonderful fairy tale? Don't you wish it were true? Don't you wish there were a loving God and a heaven? And they usually say no. Uh, if they say yes, I continue to argue with them. Camus said yes. Sartre said no. I think the difference between those two kinds of atheists is bigger than the difference between an atheist and a, and a believer. Because the, the door on, on, of hell doesn't say, abandon all faith, you who enter here. It says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. If you don't have faith, but you wish you did, I think God will take that wish into consideration. The picture I was building up last night of the cosmic sadist is simply a picture of a man like S.C., 
who used to sit next to me at dinner and tell me what he'd been doing to the cats that afternoon. Now, a being like S.C. couldn't invent or create or govern anything. He would set traps and try to bait them, but he never would have thought of baits like love or laughter. He make a universe, he couldn't make a joke. The fact that there is comedy is a profound proof of the existence of God. The devil has no sense of humor. Well, here is Lewis's ultimate rational argument. This couple of sentences, more than any other, I think, is his final answer to the problem of pain. Take your choice. The pains occur. If they are unnecessary, then there is either no God or a bad God. If there is a good God, then all these pains are necessary. For no good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. Inflict or permit them. Well, maybe we have to go a little beyond that. Maybe the idea that, of course, God doesn't do evil. We do. It's the free will defense. Yes, that's a necessary part of the answer, but that's not all of it. Even the idea of God indirectly willing, that is, tolerating or allowing evil, although it's not simply wrong, is inadequate. Here is a stunning paragraph from a book I'm reading now by Robert Cardinal Sarah called The Day Is Now Far Spent. He says, I am sad when I hear people say God allows evil. No, God does not allow evil. He suffers from it. He is mortally wounded by it. He is the first one struck by it. The more monstrous the evil, the more evident it is that God is the first victim. God is like a mother. Through love, a mother can suffer with her child far more than her child can. A mother can experience her child's agony more painfully than the child himself, precisely because of this identification of love with the beloved. How can we imagine that God's love is less maternal than a mother's love, when all the love of all the mothers is only a drop in the ocean of God's maternal affection? No one is struck without God being struck. Silence is the most powerful and most fraught word spoken by love. And this absence is the most immediate presence at the heart of human suffering. The God who is love was present in Auschwitz, silently, mysteriously flooding that horrible martyred ground with his love. No one can know how God welcomed into his arms all who passed from life to their demise in those death chambers. In order to doubt it, we would have to have lost sight entirely of the dignity of our freedom. If God creates our freedom, it is not in order to petrify it and to replace it with himself. The task is ours. I think Lewis would agree with that addition. Because Lewis himself says in The Four Loves, and this is a memorable and unforgettable quote, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and probably be broken. As Henri Nouwen says, the only whole heart is a heart that's been broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even a pet. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all deep entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I'll give Henri now in the last word very practical conclusion from this. The great challenge is living your wounds through instead of just thinking them through. It is better to cry than to worry. Better to feel your wounds deeply than to insist on understanding them. Better to let them enter into your silence than talking about them. The choice you face constantly is whether you are taking your hurts to your head or taking them to your heart. In your head you analyze them, find their causes and consequences, and coin words to speak and write about them. But no final healing is likely to come from that source. You need to let your wounds go down into your heart. Then you can live them through and discover that they will not destroy you. Your heart is greater than your wounds. Lewis found that out in his own life. And in that great C.S. Lewis movie, Shadowlands, by far the most moving scene is the scene in the attic. Where for the first time in his life he let himself weep. Because weeping is a kind of revelation of God's answer to the problem of pain. When Jesus confronted the death of his beloved friend Lazarus, he didn't speak, he wept. And I think that's the profoundest verse in the Bible. It's only two words, Jesus wept. That's God's answer to pain, ours too. All right, I've talked enough, it's your turn. Questions? A round of applause for Dr. Crave. Hi, my name is Guillermo. Thank you very much for being with us. I really enjoy your talk. I just had one question. I read the book uh, this last month, and I was suspecting more on uh, natural disasters because the way C.S. Lewis tackles the problem of pain is by looking at free will, obviously, and it's the pain caused by our actions. But I don't know, sometimes I feel that um, I, I still need to think more about the, the pain caused by things that are out of our control that no free will caused or something of that sort. So I was wondering what you have to say about that. Thank you very much. That's an excellent question. There's two kinds of evil. The more serious kind, the kind that we're responsible for, has the clearest explanation, free will. But an evil that's also serious, though not as serious as sin, namely physical pain and suffering, can't be explained simply by our free will. And the answer to that is much more mysterious. Uh, Lewis 
gives an attempt to answer it, which I think is true as far as it goes, but inadequate. Uh, he says, God wants to create beings in a community, spirits that can communicate with each other through a material world. In order to do that, the material world has to be stable. It has to follow its own laws. It can't be simply a, a, an imaginative dream. If the only way we communicated with each other was by our dreams, there would be no need for pain because we wouldn't invent pain in our dreams. But the same thing that is convenient to one is inconvenient to another. The same wall that keeps one city safe uh, makes the same city impregnable to its enemies that want to knock down the wall. So inevitably, there's going to be pain in a physical world. He further speculates, and this is reasonable, that before the fall, the relation between the soul and the body was very different. The body totally obeyed the soul. Once the soul disobeyed God, the body disobeys the soul. Because once the, uh, uh, the king is deposed, his uh, prime minister loses his authority. And the king is like God, uh, and the uh, prime minister is like the soul, uh, and the authority over the world is, is gone then. Uh, so before the fall, obviously Adam must have stubbed his toe against some rocks in the Garden of Eden or hit his head against a low-hanging tree branch. But instead of pain, instead of the experience that we now have of pain, darn it, it was, thanks, I needed that. And sometimes you see that in the saints and mystics. And you also see that in, in Lewis's notion, uh, although he's a Protestant, of purgatory, which is very Catholic. Uh, purgatory is not a place you go to pay for your sins because Jesus didn't complete the job. That's ridiculous. Purgatory is a place to go in order to complete the job of becoming perfect. And if you think that at the moment of death you're so perfect you can just leap into the arms of God without any further alteration, you're very shallow. But that pain is good. Uh, it's, it's wanted, it's willed, it's loved, it's demanded. Oh, please make me perfect. Please get this ugly skin off. Uh, probably that's the, the reaction that we had to pain before sin came into the world. Sin is rebellion against God and all of his works. Uh, and without sin, there would still be, you know, bumpings of the head against the low-hanging tree branch, but Chesterton has an essay on that. Uh, in fact, the title is something like On Bumping My Head Against the Low-Hanging Tree Branch. He, he says he, he was in his study and his mind was filled with his own brilliant ideas and imagination and he was wandering absentmindedly out and suddenly bumped his head painfully against the low-hanging tree branch and his, his, his reaction was, thank God, that's the real world. I think one of the most dangerous and insidious devices ever invented is the smartphone because we can live in an artificial world increasingly and disappear into our screens and never bump our head against low-hanging tree branches again. That doesn't fully answer the question, but it helps. Thank you very much. Um, I first came across your works in one of your dialogues when I was an undergraduate, uh, Jesus and Socrates, I think it was, uh, but uh, I've been wrestling most recently with this question of suffering as well. And um, as, a, um, as coming out of a very uh, evangelical and strongly Calvinist background, 
Uh, I think one of the points, and Lewis addresses this in Problem of Pain in the chapter of Omnipotence, is uh, the fact that um, of God's sovereignty, uh, he looks at the question from miracles and says, you know, yes, miracles occur, but by definition they have to be rare because of the nature of, you know, creation, getting back to your point there. And I think, but I, um, building off of that, I think a place where a lot of folks, a lot of Christians wrestle with is, um, and you touched on a little bit, the volition, is God sending, allowing, and so forth. Um, but on the flip side of it, if God is all-powerful, if um, God can relieve from this, uh, why, why doesn't God? And what I understood, Lewis, in that particular um, passage on miracles is saying that going back to the fall, that that needs to be our baseline, that we need to constantly recognize that when something like your child dies, which is what happened with us, that's the norm in this broken world. That shouldn't be what surprises us. Yeah. What surprises us is when the grace and when a miracle does come because then it is truly miraculous. If it wasn't, it would be happening all the time. So I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about um, the fallen nature of the world and how that should shape and inform our understanding of suffering from a Christian worldview. I think you're profoundly right in questioning the question, or rather the assumption of the question. The assumption of the question is a kind of normalism. And the fall says, no, we're living in an abnormal world and we are abnormal selves. We, we are the only entities in the universe that are alienated from ourselves. Dogs can't be undoggy and grass can't be ungrassy, but humans can be inhuman. And that's something that secular psychology simply cannot accept, abnormalism. The, the baseline, the standard, is not what you see empirically. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, God's sovereignty is certainly not in question uh, unless you return to paganism but God's ability to give up that sovereignty in the incarnation and to accept receptivity and passivity and suffering the fact that God can suffer uh, that's, that's the thing that a a typically good, wise Greek philosopher has the biggest trouble with. How could God suffer? That's, that's why Muslims can't accept the incarnation. That's why they can't even accept the fact that, that Jesus, who for them was just a prophet, was crucified. Allah would not allow that. Allah's sovereignty is so great that he would not allow even any of his prophets to be publicly disgraced. They must be successful. Well, Muhammad was the only successful prophet in history. Uh, all the other prophets were uh, part of a nonprofit organization. <laughs> we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? We should ask, why do good things happen to bad people? First of all, thank you so much for being here. Um, and I'm almost afraid to ask this question in front of the devil. Uh, I'm not comparing you to the devil. I mean the devil. Um, I'm 63 years old. And uh, I have friends who have suffered. I may have bumped my head a time or two against a limb. Um, but I don't see any suffering in my life, really, compared to what I've seen. Yeah. And if, if it is necessary uh, to perfect me, what, what am I in for? 
You don't know whether you're a bassoon or a second violin or the timpani uh, or a saxophone. Uh, God created an orchestra. We all have different jobs. We all have different powers and weaknesses. I never met a single person who wasn't defective in some area and excellent in some other area. No exceptions. So to talk about uh, a kind of a standard baseline of equality, to talk about justice as equality is, is ridiculous. Justice is not equality. Justice is proportion. Justice is relationship. Justice is in the whole. And we all have a part to play that we don't know. What you're going to do in heaven, you, you and I are both kind of old. I'm much older than you are. And we've led fairly uh, easy lives without horrible sufferings. We were never in a concentration camp. Uh, we may have lost loved ones, and we may have lost people's love and affection, and that's a very deep suffering. But uh, we all know people who have suffered much more than we. Uh, so we're kind of weak. We're, we're, we're kind of cowardly. We're not, we're not really tough. We're not great saints. How come God makes so-and-so a great saint by terrific suffering and leaves you alone? We don't know. Boethius gives you some hints in the Consolation of Philosophy. He says, well, God looks on one person and says, he's so weak that if I allowed him to suffer, he'd collapse, so I don't. But he doesn't know how weak he is. And this one uh, doesn't deserve to suffer. He's a saint, and he doesn't need suffering. So this saint is going to live an easy life. And that saint uh, can offer up his suffering more powerfully than the other one was, so we'll give him more. But we don't know that. So the ultimate answer to the problem of evil is we're not God. We keep forgetting that. Stop the presses. Call out the reporters. <laughs> uh, I admire the Muslims because five times a day, they repeat, there is no God but God. They say the heart rusts and you have to keep scraping the rust off. We keep forgetting that. So we don't know. We don't have to know. As Mother Teresa said, God did not put us into this world to be successful. He put us here to be faithful. And that success includes philosophical success. If... If the problem of evil had a clear and logical and rational answer, if we fully understood why God does what he does, that would prove atheism. That would prove that there's no higher being than us. If there is a God, we're stupid compared with God. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I know I definitely need that reminder all the time that I'm not God. Um, but a lot of the atheists that I talk to, they say that if they were God, maybe they can't make the world perfect. Maybe they Whatever eliminate. follows those three words is nonsense. Right. <laughs> Automatically. <laughs> right. Um, but they immediately come at the problem of pain that they see, and they say, well, I certainly wouldn't make the world with earthquakes and tornadoes and volcanoes and bone cancer and children and things like that. Those, And you kind of mentioned this earlier with Guillermo's question um, about the problem of pain being divorced from human free will. Um, and they say, well, how can this be if Genesis 1 said that God created the, the world as good, the natural world should be good? And, of course, if I'm in that conversation as a Christian, I say, well, Genesis 3, the fall. And they say, well, they come back at me with, well, how does human um, rebellion correspond to the earth being in rebellion? How does that where, – where's that logical conclusion there? And then, of course, I say, come back to me later when I have it figured out. So that's why I'm here. Um, so what are, what are some things, um, 
that help you when you when wrestling with that question? Just obviously, that's a huge question that can't be totally answered. But in Genesis three, the connection between human rebellion with the curse on the ground, where how do we see the problem of sin and evil even in the natural world when it comes to earthquakes, tornadoes? disease, bone cancers, those things that seem to be divorced mm-hmm. from the type of free will evil that we were talking about? First of all, basic principle of literary interpretation of any book, and the Bible is a book, always try to get into the mind of the author and the intentions of the author. Listen before you respond. All right. That includes understanding the literary form. Genesis 1 through 3 is poetry. It's true. It's profound. It's divine revelation. It's infallible. But it's poetry. You don't have to believe there was a literal talking snake and a magic apple. And you don't have to believe literally that thorns and thistles didn't appear, but God created them out of nothing at the moment that Eve ate the apple. Okay. Secondly, uh, philosophical principles are always involved in interpreting anything, any book. And one of the basic philosophical principles in the Bible is that God created us to be souls and bodies together not platonic souls imprisoned in bodies until we could finally get out of them and and become angels. But uh, it was no mistake that God made a single person simultaneously spiritual and physical. All right. So you can't have any destiny for either the soul or the body without there being profound echoes in the other. So once the soul falls from God, the body falls from the soul into pain. Pain and sin necessarily go together. So, very uh, thirdly, we can't contra- truth can never contradict truth. So, truth known by scripture and truth known by science can never contradict each other. The so-called war between science and religion is a great myth. The war does not exist. There is not a single casualty. No discovery of any science in the history of the world has ever disproved any one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. Now, we know from science that there was animal pain before man came on the earth and that thorns and thistles were there long before there was human beings. So you can't interpret that uh, chronologically and literally and scientifically. So the most reasonable interpretation is that the rebellion of the soul against God is the primal pain and that pain necessarily implies a rebellion against God's world. Yeah, there were volcanoes and earthquakes before the fall. And if Adam and Eve had not fallen, uh, what would God have done? Would he have said, well, you passed my first test, and now I'll take you out of the garden and bring you into the rest of the world where there are volcanoes and earthquakes, and we see what you do with that? Or would he stop them? Or would he give them a a different kind of test? We simply don't know. Uh, The Bible is a need-to-know book. It's not a all the answers in the world book. We'll get that in heaven. This isn't heaven. Yeah, thank you for the talk. And uh, I especially appreciated you brought in the book of Job. Um, and I've, I've used that text in my classes occasionally. And uh, the passage you, you mentioned at the end where he says, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ears, and now I see you with my eyes. Uh, as I recall, he goes on to say, and I repent of myself in dust and, in ashes. Dust and ashes. And that always um, is kind of tricky to talk about or discuss with the students because they take that to mean, uh, so you see, he must have sinned after all. No. Um, 
and the friends were actually, Job's friends were actually right. No. Okay, no. So, so how do you take that, that passage? What does he repent of? He doesn't mention any sin. God himself says in the first chapter that Job is a saint. Job does not deserve this stuff. So that's data. Can't ignore the data. So what does he repent of? He repents of thinking that he's God, that he has all the answers, that he deserves all the answers, that he could understand all the answers. Basically, what God says to Job is, hush, my beloved little child, you couldn't possibly understand. Uh, the most important word there is the word hush. <laughs> or in the words of a popular song, which probably didn't mean these words profoundly and theologically, but I take them that way. Here's what God says to me. Shut up and dance with me. <laughs> Let's have a round of applause for Dr. Craig. Thank you.